All right, we're going to go to Colossians chapter 2. If you'll turn with me there, Colossians chapter 2. That's where our, our uh, major text is going to be today. Before we get there, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to throw a few things out at you to make sure we're all on the same page before we get to this text of Scripture, and there's a reason. There's somewhere I'm going with this. <clears throat> and here's where I'm going. I want you to know something. Colossians, second chapter Colossians says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden away in Christ Jesus. And I want you to know that is not just some metaphorical, vague speech about how wonderful and precious Christ is. That is a very true academic um, statement. It's a proposition that is true. The, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are all hidden in Christ Jesus. And I want to show you how that is. Now, before we get there, Real quick, I want to give you some, uh, some quotes to think about. Will Provine, that's this guy right here, actually passed away in 2015 from cancer. He was a renowned atheist professor at Cor Cornell. He said this, let me summarize my views of what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. He was a very, very renowned atheist, very outspoken. I must say these are basically Darwin's views as well. There are no gods. There are no purposeful forces of any kind, no life after death. When I die, I'm absolutely certain that I'm just going to be completely dead. That's just all. That's going to be the end of me, period. There's no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning of life, and certainly no free will for humans either. That's Will Provine. He has done a very, very good job of articulating what the atheist, unbelieving worldview looks like. You, your worldview and my worldview should be very, very different from that. Let me give you Cornelius Van Til. He said this, the proof of God is the logical impossibility of the contrary. The truth is that the Christian worldview must be assumed to be true in order to make sense of the world around us. It alone provides the preconditions of intelligibility. It's a lot of big words, isn't it? I have no idea what you just said, Wilson, but it sounds good. Um, here's what he's saying. He's saying every atheist in the world really knows that there's a God. In fact, they have a relationship with that God. And the reason they do is because they're suppressing the truth that they are trying to say they don't believe. There are parts of the Christian worldview they must assume because the treasures of knowledge and wisdom are truly hidden in Christ Jesus. And to have access to some of that knowledge, they have to assume some parts of the Christian story, the, the meta-narrative, the big, the gospel, the big picture, is true. Now, getting on with this. First point. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That is not the educated man. You will notice what that scripture says. It does not say the academic has said in his heart, there is no God. It says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I want to tell you something. That is not simply petty name calling. That is an academic indictment. And I'll show you why that's true in just a second. But that's the first point. We need to all get on that page. Sometimes we as Christians want to say this. We want to pretend that someone can actually be uh, very knowledgeable and intelligent and well-learned because they're an atheist. Oh, they're, they're really smart. No, they're not. They're foolish. They may have a lot of letters after their name, and they may be very polished with their rhetoric, but they are, if they believe the propositions of atheism, they are literally a fool. And I'm going to show you why here in just a second. Number two, the Bible says in Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It also says Psalm 111, Proverbs 9:10, Psalm 112. Over and over and over, it tells us two things. It tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and it tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It does not say the penultimate 
of all human experience and all knowledge is the fear of the Lord. It says the beginning. That is making an epistemological statement. I know that's a big word. I'm going to talk about it here in just a second. That is making a statement. That is saying this. If you want to have any knowledge, any learning, any wisdom, it starts with the fear of the Lord. That's the foundation. That's not the highest. That's the foundation. Without that, you can't even begin. Number three, there's no neutrality among worldviews. He who's not for me is against me, Christ said. I want to remind you of that. There's no such thing as neutrality. There is no area where Christ is not Lord. And it doesn't matter whether we're talking about science or whether we're talking about English grammar or whether we're talking about math class. There is no area over all of human existence and experience where Christ is not Lord. You cannot go into any apologetic conversation. You cannot go talk to your atheist friends. This is the problem with Christianity today as far as apologetics goes. We want to pretend that there's neutrality. And so when the atheist says, well, look, 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 don't, don't bring the Bible into it. Just, just take a neutral view. Let's just come at this blank slate. What he's actually saying is, look, you put down your weapons so that only I'll have weapons in this debate. And so many Christians think so shallowly that they'll actually do that. Well, okay, well, let's not bring the Bible into it. Let's just talk about natural law. If you don't have the Bible, you don't have an objective standard by which to say what should or should not be natural law. Natural law is derived from the scriptures. The atheist wants to pretend it's not true. You don't go in pretending with him. You let him play in his fantasy land. You don't get in that toy box too. Okay, now that that's there, turn with me if you would. Colossians chapter 2. Paul's letter to the Colossians. Man, I love Colossians. When, when Blake brought Colossians up this morning, I loved it. It was like, yes, we're going back there. By the way, if you missed Blake's uh, teaching this morning, it was very, very good. Spoke on the hypostatic union. It was so good. I was very impressed. Treasure that, Blake. I'll probably never give you another compliment in your life, but that was really good. So well done, man. All right, here's what it says. Colossians 2, 1 through 10. Colossians 2.1 says this, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as, as have not seen me in the flesh, or some translations say face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. Now, I want you to get this next one. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? All of them are hidden in Christ? You're telling me an unbeliever can't do science. You're telling me an unbeliever can't do English literature or grammar or math or logic. I know better than that, Wilson. I've seen it. Me too. I promise there are many unbelievers that can do math better than I can. All right? I am not a great mathematician. I know just enough math to teach physics. And that's about the end of it. But it says this. It says the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. That's kind of important. For though I'm absent in the flesh, yet I'm with you in the spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. 
As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Here's another important point. Verse 8, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. Man, I'd underline that. I'd highlight that. I would star that. I might tattoo that on my forearm. That is muy, muy importante, especially when we're talking about Christianity in the culture that we live in today in Western society, specifically in America. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. Atheistic epistemology is nothing more than deceitful, clever emptiness. According to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, but not according to Christ. For in him, Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, which was what Blake was telling us about this morning. And you are complete in him, and he is the head of all principality and power. There's so much in this little piece that you could probably unpackage it for hours and hours. Actually, I made like an 80-slide PowerPoint, and then I realized that was like four hours worth of information. And so I went back and trimmed it a little bit. Um, And here's why I have that much stuff, though. I think you can handle it. If I thought I was talking to a bunch of Christians that were still on milk, I wouldn't even try try to bring this out. But most of you here can handle meat. And it's time for us to get into some of this meat. I think... This passage right here will reveal, in my mind, the strongest evidence for Christianity against atheism that there is out there. But the reason we don't pull it out is because two things. Number one, we get a little bit blinded. We get deceived with those persuasive words. We get cheated through philosophy and empty deceit. Number two, we don't, we're just not sure how to articulate it. And um, quite frankly, it's a pretty aggressive apologetic method and we think well that would that would be be kind of rude to point that out let me tell you how strong this argument is this argument is so strong they forbid it in college debate it is what's literally called a savage criticism when i say that what i mean is this criticism is so strong you literally cut off your opponent's ability to even make an argument before it starts now, look, I, I'm not saying it's bad to have evidence. We should all have evidence. We should, we should know some basic facts about science and history and things like that. And we can certainly use those to argue for the faith. However, evidence does not change anyone's hearts. No person ever got saved because they just had all this evidence and they went, man, the evidence is overwhelming. I'm going to become a Christian. No, they get saved because the gospel works in their hearts. But one of the ways that that the gospel works is our apologetic tears down the resistance to that gospel in their heart. When you know how to do what I'm going to show you today, here's what you're going to be able to do to the unbeliever. You're going to be able to show him how philosophically bankrupt his beliefs are. You can believe that if you want to, but you're living in a fairy tale. And see, here's the problem. Most people, if they're if they're an atheist, an agnostic. I was an agnostic before I was a Christian. Most people that are atheist or agnostic are so because they've lived their whole life in an echo chamber. It's true. They've been raised in a household where most of the information that comes into the household is from atheist, agnostic sources. They go to a public school where most of the information is from an atheist or agnostic source. They listen to music where most of the information is atheist or agnostic source. They live in this echo chamber. No one has ever challenged the assumptions and presuppositions of their worldview. And because of that, when you come along and you know how to challenge it, I'm going to tell you something. It will bewilder some of them. Some of them will get very angry at you. 
I do this all the time. I'm not going to lie. I do this all the time in class. Some of my high school kids will come in and they'll just assert stuff. I've got a kid that I've been talking to off and on the last eight weeks. I'm an atheist. I'm an atheist. That, that mythological Christianity nonsense, that's not for me. Okay. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that. Now, two days later, he comes in and he's like, man, it shouldn't, it's not right. People get all drunk. They go get in these drunk driving wrecks. Do you know how much, how much problems alcohol causes in our society? I said, what, what's wrong with alcohol? What's wrong with drunkenness? You don't think it's wrong? Oh, no, no, no. I think it's wrong. I have a reason to think it's wrong. I think it's wrong because of the scriptures. Do I think it's right if a man comes home drunk and beats his wife? No, but I have a reason to say that. You, sir, have told me you're an atheist. You have no standard for morality. You have no objectivity to appeal to. You can't stand up and condemn anything as wrong. So quit hollering about how it's wrong. You can't, the best you can say is you don't like it. So say that instead. And you could tell it was like blink, 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 blink. What? Huh. Never thought about it. I said, no, go ahead. Just, just say it really upsets you. He goes, well, it does upset me. And I said, why should I care whether it upsets you or not? Blink, blink, blink. Hmm. I don't know. Exactly. And you're going to do the same thing. You're going to show the atheist, the relativist, that he is bankrupt. He has no way to contend for any kind of knowledge. Not just moral knowledge, guys. Physical knowledge, too. And I'll show you that here in just a second. How does unbelief drive you to foolishness? Well, the fear of the Lord is not just the ultimate. It's the beginning of wisdom. Attempting to deny the existence of God reduces anyone to foolishness. Atheism forces you to accept absurd propositions about the nature of reality. And you, as the consistent Christian, are one of the few people on earth who can stand up with a very consistent epistemology, with a very consistent philosophical basis grounded in the scriptures, and say, this is why I know something's right or wrong. You have no way to know something's right or wrong. This is how I know logic is real and we can utilize it, and mathematical constructs and abstractions can be utilized. This is how I know. You have no way to account for that. Don't even start borrowing from my worldview. You remember Jesus said the story about the man that built his house on the rock, the man that built his house on the sand? That's exactly where we're at. You are the one who's built your house on the rock. And the person that you're arguing with has put their entire philosophical debut, they put their entire philosophical um, system of thought on sinking sand, on shifting sand. There's no objectivity. It's just blowing sand. And what they'll do while you're arguing is they want to put one foot on your rock for stability. And what you're going to do is you're going to say, get your foot off of there, get back in that sandbox that you think is so true, and own your worldview. And that's going to be, <laughs> that's going to be aggressive to them. What? What do you mean? You don't believe that's right? Oh, I believe it's right. You have no way of saying it's right. You stay in your worldview, sir. You're the one who's standing up and saying this is true. Well, you stay over there and show me. Don't let them put their feet on your rock. You show them that they're standing on sinking sand and there's no way they can account for the things that they claim are true. You can put it this way. When you become an atheist or an agnostic, you're like a guy that gets on a plane in Dallas and the plane's heading to New York and you want to get off in St. Louis. See, nobody wants to take atheism all the way. They still want to retain some of the Christian morality, right? They still want to say it's wrong if you steal their wallet. If it is true that there is no God, there's nothing wrong with me doing anything to anyone else. 
Here's what you want to do, though. I'm going to retain the good stuff when it affects me. Well, you shouldn't treat me that way. Why not? Well, it's not right. Why is it not right? Well, because everybody knows it's wrong. No, they don't. I don't know it's wrong. Why is it wrong? I had that exact discussion with an atheist in my class. A couple years ago, I had a kid told me he's an atheist, and I said, well, I'm glad to know that because I'm just going to flunk you. Why? Well, you're an atheist. I don't like you. Now, I actually like the kid a lot, okay? The truth is I like him a lot. I still like him a lot. But I told him that, and it shocked him. You can't do that. Why not? Actually, if you'd like to know the law, sir, I'm the teacher. My word is final. Even if the administration doesn't like it, even if they fire me for the grade I put in the grade book, I get the last word. So I'm just going to give you a zero. Well, that's not right. Why isn't it right? And he couldn't think of it. Well, it's just wrong. Everybody knows it's wrong. I don't know it's wrong. In fact, I think it's good. In fact, since there's no God and we're just, you know, evolved protoplasm from, you know, goo to the zoo, I mean, hey, what's wrong with that? It makes me happy to see you in pain. What's wrong with that? The problem is you want to think like a Christian, and that's good. But you'll allow him to do the same thing. So what happens is you've got an atheist, and he says, you know, rape is wrong. Rapists should be put to death. And you go, oh, gosh. Yeah, he is right. And you'll just agree with him. Wow, I agree with you, man. All right. Don't agree with him. He has no right to condemn anything. You say, it's wrong? I thought you were an atheist. Well, I am. (laughs) Then rape isn't wrong. In fact, not only is it not wrong, if you're an atheist, I can give you a very, very good argument for why not only is it not wrong, it is a moral duty. Hey, if I'm bigger and stronger, my genes should be in the next generation more. Hey, survival of the fittest. So if I'm able to rape or pillage or destroy, I should. Why shouldn't I? Most atheists, and I was one of those, most atheists are not willing to go all the way. They only want out of the judgment of God on their life. That's why they're running. They're not running because they don't know God. Romans chapter 1 tells us very clearly they do know God. And by the way, they have a relationship. This is, I, I hate the rhetoric. We, you, look, you don't need religion. You need a relationship with Jesus. Newsflash, they've got one. The relationship they have is they're trying to suppress. That means to press down. In the act of pressing something down, you are touching it, aren't you? All right, you go to the, uh, over to the pool here when it opens up, right? You ever play this? You got a volleyball? Throw the volleyball around, try to figure out who's got the volleyball. Somebody's sitting on the volleyball, right? I got that. Not me. I got my hands up in the air, right? In the act of pushing that under the water, you are touching it. The atheist and agnostic and unbeliever have a relationship with God. It's just that they're doing everything they can to suppress that truth, to hold it down. Just like I was at one time. But in the act of pressing it down, It is rising up against them. It is witnessing against them. And the further you push the ball down, the harder it pushes back up against you, isn't it? And this is exactly what that is. The harder you push on the Christian worldview, unlike any other worldview out there on earth, the harder you press on that worldview, the harder it pushes back on you. Most other worldviews, you press them hard enough, you just get them to collapse. Christianity, you press it hard enough, it presses back against you. You want to know why? Because the Christian worldview is not just based on just scientific facts thrown out there. It's based on a person. And he is still alive, and he's still active, and he's still witnessing. His, his spirit is still alive and working in the earth, and he's still pushing back. 
it forces you to be irrational. There are three things it forces you to do. If you decide you're going to be an atheist, it forces you to be irrational. You must believe that the universe created itself. We have never seen anything create itself in nature, ever. And yet, the atheist wants to say, well, yeah, that's true, that's true, but we want one exception. Sir, if it's a law, that means there are no exceptions, even for you. No, there's no exceptions. How did the universe come to be? Well, we're not really sure, but that's not important. That's not important. How did you decide that's not important? What standard did you use to decide that's not an important question? Well, I don't really know. That's exactly right. You don't know. You don't know. And you know why you don't know? Because all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ Jesus. And as long as you push against him, you have no access to that. And I am not going to allow you to steal from the Christian worldview while we're talking. Life must create itself from non-life. Here's the second exception. That's the law of abiogenesis. We have a law in biology. Life can't create itself. That's actually part of cell theory, which is by far the most well-established theory that we have right now in biology. Much more so than Darwin's theory. Um, Part of the cell theory says all living things come from other living things. All cells come from pre-existing cells. I make my kids learn the three propositions of cell theory every year. These three propositions of cell theory will be on the test. It'll be a fill-in-the-blank. I promise you, here they are. Write them down. It'll be on the test. Some of them never, you know, they, they think I'm lying or something. They don't, they don't learn it. But the point of the story is this. One of those propositions says all cells come from pre-existing cells, which raises a really good question. Where did the first cell come from? At that juncture, you have them, and they know it. And so they squeal for, ah, exception, exception. We're not sure, but it could have come from, oh, no, no, it couldn't have. To say it could have come from anything, you'd need to show that. Can you show me that in a lab? Have we made a cell? Well, no. Okay, well, where did it come from then? Well, we're not really sure. Okay, you're not sure. That's because you, you're ignorant, purposefully. Third, only physical things could be real. You can't account for anything that's universal, invariant, and immaterial, like laws, laws of logic, laws of math, laws of physics, laws of force. If only things that are made of matter exist, conceptual things, justice cannot exist. Love cannot exist. Uh, Humanity, not humans. Yeah, I know we exist, but the class concept of humanity, you can't take humanity and put it in a test tube, can you? You can't take justice and cool it down at night. Right now, we're going to put that in a test tube and poke on it. It's immaterial. You can't do that. And the atheist, on the one hand, will say, yes, it's true, it's immaterial. And on the other hand, they'll say, well... But we believe some of those things. How do you believe in those things? If only matter exists, you are cut off from the metaphysical. You're bankrupt before you start. So here's what I'm saying. Wilson, you're telling me math class, really, don't believers and non-believers do math the same way? Well, yes and no. Yes, believers do math and unbelievers can do math as well. But the reason unbelievers can do math is because they are co-opting part of our worldview to do it. On the one hand... An atheistic humanist math professor, uh, literally, I have seen this. Uh, anybody know who Jeff Durbin is? And one, of my, one of my fave pastors, I guess, to, from out, out there in YouTube land, basically, to me. He's out in, I think, Arizona. Very big on apologetics, right? Well, he had a little video of him and uh, a math professor sparring at uh, the Reason Rally, right? The re- I love that. The Reason Rally. 
Let's all get together as atheists and talk about how reasonable our positions are. And we'll make sure there's no Christians there to spoil the fun. Huh? Huh? That's where he was at. So the math professor says, yes, I'm an atheist. And he says, well, if you're an atheist, uh, do you believe in mathematical laws? And he says, uh, well, yeah, I mean, you know, you can touch them. He says, you can, you can touch a mathematical law? Do tell. All right, and the guy starts writing out, those aren't mathematical laws. You can't touch a number. You can touch instantiations of that. You, in other words, I can write one plus one equals two. When you look up here, if I had a blackboard, <laughs> children, at one time there was this thing. It was called a chalkboard. You could write on it with these long pieces of chalk. And anyway, if I had a chalkboard up here, I could write one plus one equals two. And you would say, yes, that's true, because it obeys the laws of mathematics. And I could tell you, none of those things are physical things. One is a concept, oneness, right? If I erase the one off of the blackboard, I haven't erased oneness. If I erase the two off of the blackboard, I haven't erased two-ness throughout all of the universe. No, those are abstractions. They're concepts. And these things are just kind of standing in for those concepts. And we call that an instantiation. I know that's a big philosophical term. What I'm saying is this. You've never touched a law of math. You've never touched a law of logic. But you use them all the time. Well, then, please, sir, Mr. Atheist, please tell me how you can account for that. Bonson said it this way, and I think it's a really good way to say it. He says, look, yes, unbelievers can count. They just can't account for why they count. In other words, they're borrowing part of the Christian worldview, and your job is to stop them on that. It forces you to be irrational, even in math class. All right. It forces you to be illogical. There are two major principles in logic. Number one, don't be arbitrary. If you're arbitrary, there is no logic. All arbitrary, logic, or all arbitrary arguments are therefore invalid. Number two, don't be contradictory. Don't contradict yourself. Atheists do this all the time. There is no more hypocrisy. There is no worldview with more hypocrisy in it, with more uh, dialectical tension or cognitive dissonance or whatever you want to say, whatever t- term you want to put on it. There, are, there is no worldview that has so much tension in it as atheism. They will say things that the statement itself is self-refuting and they don't even realize it. And to our shame, most Christians don't think deeply enough to realize it and call them on it. For example, here's some that I've actually heard in in conversations. Well, it's impossible for us to actually know anything for certain. Do you know that for certain? That is a self-refuting argument. And if you as a Christian hear someone say that, you should do what you just did. Chuckle a little bit and say, "Uh, you're a fool. Inside, don't say that to them. That'd be kind of mean. Inside, and say, are you certain of that? How can you be certain of what you just claimed? Oh, that's that's, that's a good point, yeah. There's no such thing as absolutes. I don't know how many. I wish I got a dollar for every time I heard that. For some reason, that's the new one. Now, Now there's a new spin on it. There's no such things as absolutes except that statement. Really, how do you know that? It falls on the same sword. Well, I just feel it. Oh, Because feelings are a great epistemology, aren't they? No, you must be illogical. When you decide to turn your back on God and embrace atheism, you have just pigeonholed yourself into being illogical. You cannot account for a lot of things. I'm going to go over these quickly. If you want to talk about them later, just ask me. But for the sake of time, I'm not going to get into a lot of this. But atheism forces you to be illogical. It cannot account for inductive inference. Now, those are big words, but here's basically what that means. All science, all of it, 
biology, physics, chemistry, environmental science, ecology, all of it. All science is based on inductive inference. All science assumes that what we do today in the lab can be projected into the future. All science assumes that nature will be uniform in the future just like it is today. There's no way to test that. Here's what the atheist will say. Well, we know the future will resemble the past because in the past, the future resembled the past. Anybody that make anybody's head spin right there? Like, I, have, I don't even know what you just said. Was that English? Here's what they'll say. It's very probable that the future will be like the past because in the past, the future resembled what we did in the past. This is a logical fallacy called circular reasoning or begging the question. You can't prove anything about the future deductively. Instead, you must assume it to be true. Here's the other thing you have to assume. You must assume that the universe is basically um, uniform. We have not tested every single tree in all the earth to know whether they all do photosynthesis, have we? No, we've tested one tree here, one tree here, one tree here, and then we make this, it's called an inductive inference. We infer that anything else which falls into the class category of trees does the same thing. Does that make sense? That is how science works. It's called inductive inference. And if you're an atheist, you cannot account for inductive inference. You've just given up logic and science. You got on this plane thinking you're going to New York or thinking you can get off at St. Louis, and I'm telling you right now, there's no stop here. You're going all the way, and that means you're going all the way to absurdity. Atheism forces you to be immoral. Now, listen, when I say this, I always get misunderstood. When I say it forces you to be immoral, I'm not saying it forces you to go live a lifestyle of immorality, that if you're an atheist, you're going to go be a murderer and a rapist, etc., etc. Now, you could be an atheist and have very good morals, but you can't be an atheist and give an account for why you do. If you believe atheism, there's no reason to have any kind of morals. And furthermore, you can't even say what is moral and what's not. I love when I hear moral language come out of an atheist's mouth. It's game over. I mean, it's wiffle ball from there. Like, you just, I'm going, this is home run. It's easy. Why? You can't account for morality. Every atheist will have great moral codes. We should all live this way. We, should, we ought to do that. People ought not to act that way. Why not? There's no God. There's no standard. And here's what they'll say, one of two things. They'll say, well, well, really what determines morality is the culture, cultural convention. When they say that, you've got them. Look, you, your sword is on their throat. R- cultural con- Really? Well, why are you mad about Hitler? Why are you mad that Stalin killed 60 million? What's wrong with that? That was the culture. Furthermore, people who stand up within a wicked culture and try to change it are now immoral. Because, hey, the culture was this way, and that's what determines truth, right? So you wait till an atheist says this. Well, culture determines truth. And you go, oh, Martin Luther King was immoral, huh? And they kind of look at you. They'll be shocked by that. But if, they're, if what they're saying is true, then that would be correct. If it is wrong to stand up and change the moral, if the morality of the culture is dictated by the number of people who who believe it, then it is wrong to change any immoral culture. Furthermore, I love doing this. Well, it's dictated by the culture. Oh, good. Well, there are 13 countries in the world today where being an atheist is punishable by death. Is that wrong, Mr. Atheist? Well, yeah. Why is that wrong? 
culture believes it. They're all Muslim countries, by the way, but the culture believes it. And furthermore, if you'd like to go live in that country, I will help you raise money for the plane ticket. Saudi Arabia calling your name right now. Huh? No, it forces you to, you no longer have the ability to say anything is moral or immoral. Why? That is part of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are hidden in Christ Jesus. Okay? Now, you don't have the power to condemn any action, and also you don't have the power to praise any action. Now, a lot of times what will happen is you talk to somebody and they realize you've got them on this, and so they won't say something's wrong, but instead they'll do it the, other, the opposite direction. Well, that, that, that's good. I'm glad these people do such and such. That's really, that's really great. They built this hospital and fed those orphans. That's great. Excuse me, sir. No, you can't say anything's good, just like you can't say anything's bad. You have no ground to say that is a good thing or a bad thing. The best you can say is it makes you happy. And again, I don't really care what it does to your personal feelings. That has no bearing on truth. All right. The fool doesn't realize he's undermined his own position. He wants to blow up Christianity, but he doesn't realize he needs Christianity to make his own argument. Frank Turek just wrote a book called Stealing from God, and that's exactly what he talks about in the book. If you want to be an atheist and argue for your position, you actually have to, have to steal parts of the Christian worldview to do so. Now, uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 says something that's very strange to our minds. It's very paradoxical. Uh, 26, 4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. 26, 5 says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. No. Well, which is it then? Don't answer the fool or do answer the fool. Like these, by the way, this is not like one verse in one book and one in another that we're digging out a long way away. These are right next to each other in the scriptures. This is not, this is, this is a Hebrew way basically of saying, here's how you do this. This is prescriptive. Here's how you answer the fool. You don't answer him according to his folly. In other words, you don't adopt his worldview. That's what they want you to do. Hey, adopt my worldview, and then let's argue over evidence. Uh, no, I will not adopt your worldview. It is bankrupt. Then it says, then answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. You don't adopt his worldview. You don't step into his folly. Second, part the second, you show him why his reasoning is fallacious to start with, why his worldview is skewed to begin with, all right? That's a very quick way of saying it. Here's kind of the model of apologetics. He's standing over here. He's got his worldview. It's sinking sand. You've got yours. You're on the rock. And when he says something, you're going to pin him back on here. Every time, here's what he's going to do to make any kind of objective statement at all. In this case, morality. Rape is evil. Rapists should be put to death. For him to make any kind of objective statement at all, he has to take one foot and put it on the rock. And you're going to kindly leg sweep him. No, you stay on your sand. That's what you said you liked. That's what you said you believed. You stay over there and you own it. You stay in that little kitty litter full of sandbox over there. All right? You stay in that sandbox. It may stink. It may have lots of stuff in it. But that's what you've said is true, and you're going to stay over there, and I'm not letting you out of it. Because I'm going to show you your own mouth is putting forth foolishness. So I'm going to give you a couple of examples of how this works in culture. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll go through these together, right? It's like the teacher giving you the test beforehand, right? 
I saw this online. It was so good. I just was like, I've got to get that. So I did. Indoctrination. It's the asphyxiation of the brain. So here's what this is saying, okay? This, by the way, was by an atheist website. I love trolling those. I'm not going to lie. Um, this was by an atheist website, and it says indoctrination, the asphyxiation of the brain. Of course, it's always Christian indoctrination. You know, I guess Muslim indoctrination is okay. But Christian indoctrination is the asphyxiation of the brain. What is this putting forth? What is the objective proposition being told to us? It's saying something about right and wrong, isn't it? Is it talking about morality? Yes, it is telling us very implicitly, this is wrong. We shouldn't allow this. What would you say to someone that presented that argument to you? I'm telling you right now, I'd have two questions for them. First, I'd say, what's wrong with that? Well, it's the asphyxiation of the brain. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with teaching my kids lies, even if I know they're lies? To which the unbeliever will always say this, you think it's okay to teach lies? And that's where most Christians lose their footing. Well, no, I don't believe that. Well, then we agree. Obviously, we shouldn't be teaching lies. Well, right, right, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about how we can tell whether something's a lie or not. No, 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 no. He just stood on your rock, and you need to kick his foot off of there. Do you think it's okay for people to teach lies? No, <laughs> atheist, I have a reason for saying it's wrong to teach someone lies. It's called an objective standard, revelatory knowledge, the scriptures. You have no reason to say it's wrong to teach lies. If what you say is true, if your worldview is true, there's nothing wrong with doing anything. So why are you mad if somebody teaches a worldview that's not yours? Then, after you pin them on that sand, then you can say, by the way, uh, does that count if they're teaching them atheism? Just still asphyxiation of the brain? Oh, uh, well, uh, mm-hmm. Okay, I think this argument's done. No child should go through the trauma of being bullied. I recently did this. The last, uh, the week before finals, not finals week, the week before finals in my class, I always have one week worth of debate. We do critical thinking, right? We do debates. It's fun. And uh, this was one of them. Uh, if I can't find, I let my, my classes choose the topics, and if I can't find somebody to debate the other side, I'll do it, even if I don't believe in it, just to give them an opponent. What was bullying is like it's the it's the big issue now, right? I mean, oh, it's you're close to Hitler or Stalin if you're a bully, right? So I said, well, I'll just argue that I'll I'll argue for bullying because the whole class wanted to argue that it was wrong. And I said, okay, fine with me. So you know what I started with? There is no God. We're not going to make this an argument about about religion, okay? And then because they allowed me to slide on that, then I argued, well, hey. Bullying's not just a good thing, it's the right thing. Yeah, yeah, that's how we get rid of the weakest in our society. I mean, if somebody gets bullied and they go commit suicide, good, they should have. We're getting rid of the weak. And I had five kids sitting on the side of the classroom like, I said, argue for me. Why should I care? They had no, they had no good answer. The reason was they let me in on the first place. If you'll let me stand on the rock, I can give an argument, right? What they should have said was, how do you say that's moral or immoral? How can you say it's good? How can you say anything is right or wrong? You can't make an argument for that. You have no moral objectivity, sir. You can't make an argument for anything. What would you do? Kick his foot off. Get back, stand on your sand. You want to build a house on sinking sand? Fine, you own it then. Don't you try to put your foot on my rock. 
Morality is doing what, what is right regardless of what you're told. But religion's doing what you're told regardless of what's right. What do you see here? Right and wrong. Where did you get some sort of objective standard of what's right? Can you define that for me? This is going to be fun. Oh, yeah. Uh, which doesn't even take into account that this is basically saying all religions are the same, which is a, a fun argument to have later. You Christians are so judgmental, it just makes me sick. I've heard this. I literally have heard this. I'm sorry. Did, did you just judge us Christians as being judgmental? <laughs> What's the objective standard that you decided on to decide whether we were uh, judgmental or not? What's the standard for that? You have an objective standard that came from somewhere? Or is it just that you arbitrarily don't like Christianity and so therefore you make a very vacuous philosophical statement about it? That's what it sounds like. How do you answer these? Kick their feet off back onto the sand. It's illogical to follow the commands of some invisible man in the sky. For that too. Excuse me, sir. Did you say logic? Did you say it was illogical? Can you account for the laws of logic? Can you tell me how the universe made itself since that's what you're blindly following, you say? Kick their feet back onto their pile of sand and make them sink in it. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Uh, this kind of apologetic is very, very easily and very well coupled with the gospel. Because what you're doing, you're savaging their worldview. You're showing the things that you believe are foolish. And you can't account for them. And after you savage that worldview, you follow it up by saying this. Look, brother, the truth is, you know there's a God. You're doing your level best to suppress it, but you know there is. And the evidence for that is you keep, you keep supposing him. You keep assuming him to be true, even though you're trying to push it down. And I'm telling you this. That same creator is going to be either your judge or he's going to be your savior. You can push it down if you want to. But the truth is, he's real, and you know it, and you're without excuse. You can couple that right into, seriously, an evangelistic little short gospel presentation very easily. And that's why I like it. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I have people today that are mad at me because I've done this with them. But I have people today that are still mad at me because I did this with them, but they're in church today. I'm told born again. Now, he may be mad at me for five or six or ten or fifteen years. He may be mad at me until we meet again in heaven. I don't care. If that's the price to pay, shouldn't we be willing to pay that price? Don't be afraid to stand up on your faith. Don't be bamboozled by atheism. It is not nearly, it's a straw man. It's not nearly as strong as everybody tries to make it out to be. And so most Christians will say, well, I don't really want to get into that. I'm sure they'll ask me questions I just don't know about. You ask them the questions. Be aggressive with it. I'm not saying you have to be rude. But look, the scriptures say that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ Jesus. Believe it. The scriptures say that they actually know God, but they're suppressing it. Believe it. Don't buy for a second when your atheist friend tells you, look, I just don't believe there's a God out there. Yeah, everybody says that. Point that out to him. Well, you say that, but you sure don't live like it. You're a hypocrite, dude. What do you mean I'm a hypocrite? Bro, you just said we should save the whales. Who are you to say anything is right or wrong? By the way, if all there is is natural selection, if man is nothing more than an animal, then I have the right to kill whatever I want to kill. How can you say that's wrong? Save the environment. Why? 
pin them on that thing, man. You push their feet right back on that sand and tell them, this is the toy box that you've decided to stand in, and you're going to have to stand in it. You own it. And I'm going to show you why it's foolish. Does that make sense? You can do that. Listen, you can do that. You don't have to learn all the evidences that are out there to be able to defend your faith against atheism. You don't have to become, you know, you don't have to have a master's in biology or chemistry or physics to defend your faith from atheism. What you do have to have is two things. Number one, you must believe the scriptures are true when it says this. Number two, you must be bold enough to take the fight. You must be bold enough to engage. And a lot of people don't want to do that. You've got to be bold enough to engage. You don't have to do it the way I do it, but be bold enough to engage. You can do it kindly, but be bold enough to engage. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth that you've given us in your word. I thank you that you did hide away all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ Jesus, that you, as Jesus said, have revealed these to babes and hid them away from the learned. God, I ask you give us two things, Lord, that you would allow us to read your scriptures, read your word, and believe it. Let us take it into our heart that it might change our lives. And number two, give us the courage, Lord, to engage. Give us the courage to engage our neighbors to engage our friends, the people at school, the people at work, the people that we know, our family members. Give us the courage to engage them and show them that that atheism and that unbelief that they're touting is actually bankrupt. And God, I ask for those people that we do engage that you would let some of them, Lord, come to faith. God, that you would show them through your word it is bankrupt what they're, they're, they're saying and what they're um, putting forth and proposing and that they need you and that they can't escape you. I thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.